Last Sunday, I talked about your marriages and our marriages, and I talked about them not being just a partnership, but a parenthesis. And this Sunday, I want to talk about some of the people inside those parentheses, those people who are related to us, specifically those people who live in our homes. Now, before I begin this, let me say to you that during these messages, I'm sure Satan will be very active as the accuser. He's going to come to you and he's going to tell you all of the things that you've done wrong. And then he's going to try to condemn you as a person in general. By the same token, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit's going to be very active. And the Holy Spirit is going to come to you in a different way. Now, let me remind you of the differences between false guilt and very real and helpful conviction between Satan and the Holy Spirit. Satan comes to you in a way that gives you a general feeling of unworthiness and in a way that does not really give you a handle on how to attack the problem doesn't give you something specific to correct. He just helps you feel condemned and impotent. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, comes to you, and when He convicts you, He convicts you of something that you can correct. He gives you something to ask forgiveness for and something to repent of and a new way to live in the future. That is, you know what you can do about it. Not only that, but he gives you a sense of power and of hope that this situation can be corrected. So I want you to keep track of your feelings during these times. And if Satan comes to you and says, you can never do this, I want you to rebuke him and say, I know where you're from, I do not accept that message. But if the Holy Spirit comes and says, you need to change this, then you need to change it. Secondly, this is a huge subject, and so I don't even pretend to begin to teach on it, this, this uh, message. But for those of you who are interested, Becky and I are going to be doing a, uh, um, a teaching on Sunday evenings for five weeks at 6 o'clock, beginning the last weekend in July, I think. Watch for it in your bulletin. And uh, we will be able to be uh, very much more specific uh, during those times. It is so difficult to talk about destructions of the destruction of families, <clears throat> not only because it's emotionally hard, and all of us have been through it to some extent. All of us, the big word now is dysfunctional. All of us have uh, come from homes that have not operated to their full potential. Uh, but it is also difficult because unlike healthy patterns that you can pick up, Destructive patterns uh, come out in individual ways. And as a matter of fact, part of the disintegration of a family is disintegration into individualism. Tolstoy said in his great novel, uh, Anna Karenina, the first line was, all happy families resemble one another, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And it's true of the character of the destruction of a family. Therefore, um, what I want to share with you this morning is a few, I think, predictable ways in which Satan has destroyed not only families in homes, but families in churches and families in, in, uh, in cultures. I'm going to be reading from a couple of uh, passages that could be said to be bookends in the Bible because there are so many so much in between. First from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You're not going to die. You surely shall not die. For the Lord knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then in Ephesians, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now look how he goes from obedience, not detailing the requirements of obedience, but goes straight to the relationship. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. First thing that Satan does, or one of the first things that Satan does to destroy a relationship is to create suspicion within that relationship. The suspicion that, uh, that Dave was so adequately expressing, come on now, you know, is this really necessary? Do your parents have their own agenda here? Are they just trying to keep you from something? The suspicion that the serpent said in the garden, did God say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? The suspicion that uh, that is um, a part of concentrating on the restrictions of a relationship. Satan will try to get us, instead of counting on or concentrating on the relationship itself, to concentrate on the restrictions of the relationship. And in concentrating on the restrictions, they will seem to increase in their restrictiveness. He went to Eve and he said, first of all, did God say you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Notice the negativism. Let's see what you can't do because of this relationship. And he greatly exaggerates through the form of a question. Satan hardly ever confronts us with something bad to do. You know that? I like to use the term insinuate. Satan always insinuates. It reminds me of the garden. In sin you ate. Satan insinuates. And therefore, he says, well, let's talk about God and, and let's talk about what you're not allowed to do. And Eve thinks about that and begins to build a suspicion about God and about his restrictiveness, so much so that she finds herself adding to it. God didn't say anything about touching the tree. In 2.17, God said, chapter 2.17, God said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so therefore, what we have is Satan building up a sense of restrictiveness, so much so that Eve 
finds herself adding to the restrictedness that has originally come from God for her protection. Those of you with children, when you say to them, you can't go to such and such a party, many times you'll get this response. I can't do anything. Right? I can't do anything. I have the strictest parents in the whole town. To which Becky and I always respond, yeah, and don't you ever forget it. You know? We're not, we're not backward about that. But you see what's happened. He has added to. No, there's a lot of things that they can do. There's a lot of things that they can do. We have always been very careful about sending them off to places that we don't know the supervision and we don't know what's going to go on. And so we're very, very careful about that. We explain to that, them to, uh, that to them along the way. But it does seem restrictive. And Satan will always get in there and say, they're just trying to keep you under their thumb. They, they just don't want to mess with taking you over there and bringing you back. They're just trying to keep power over you. You see the suspicion that is built up. Not only that, but they have friends who will add in to the whole Christian scene things that God never said. Did you ever have somebody come up to you and say, yeah, I know what that Christianity stuff's all about. You know, there's a whole bunch of restrictions in that Christianity stuff. I know that when you're Christian, you're not supposed to do a lot of stuff that's fun. I mean, you can't get drunk, and you can't watch TV, and you can't do drugs, and you can't dance, and you can't have sex outside of marriage, and you can't uh, 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 wear makeup, and you can't... And go on and on and on, you know? And you feel so forced to defend God, they get down and say, isn't that right? And you go, well, yeah. Wait a minute. You, you see what happened? A whole lot of restrictions were added into Christianity that were never there. God didn't say them. Yes, there is a prohibition against drunkenness and against doing drugs and against having sex outside of marriage, all for our own protection. But God never said anything about TV. God never said anything about makeup. God never said anything about dancing. David danced for crying out loud. Now, there are some holiness groups that say, well, that's worldly and that could lead you on, and that's okay, that's up to them. But that's not from God. That's something we have added. Attributing it to God out of a sense that God is much more restrictive than He really is and out of a resentment and a suspicion toward God. Not only that, but we as parents add to that because... When we get flustered or when something goes wrong, we not only want to maintain the safety of our kids, we concentrate on the restrictiveness of our behavior and on the power we think we're losing. And we, as Ephesians says, provoke our children to anger. You know how? Because when we feel cornered, we feel that we must come out with a, with a punishment right then. We feel like we've got to come up with an answer right then so nine times out of ten, it's much more restrictive than is reasonable, and it's much more general than specific. When, when our kid scares us, we say, that's it, you're grounded from everything forever. Right? Sure. Because we, we're scared we want to keep power. But watch what happens with that. Every time we do that, we have to back off, don't we? And every time we back off, there's a little category in our kid's mind that says, they don't mean it when they punish me. They're just going to get tired, and I'm going to get away with it anyhow. And every time that category goes off in our kid's mind, 
They project further to God and say, God doesn't mean what he says. In the end result, it's all going to be okay because he's just a big fluffy God who won't possibly hold me to what he said he was going to hold me to. You see the damage that does? Instead of having the, the, the sense to step back when we're alarmed at our children's behavior and be able to say to them, you know, I'm hurt, I'm angry. It's not good to talk in hurt and anger. It's not good to make decisions out of hurt and anger. I want to go pray about this. I want to go talk to your mom about this. I want to see what specifically we could do in order to correct that behavior in you. Then you come back with something you don't have to back off of. And then it is not a power struggle. It is a corrective. See, that's the difference between the way Satan works and the way the Holy Spirit works. Satan always makes it into a power struggle. And the Holy Spirit always makes it into a corrective for our own strength and health. Listen to this. Many of you have heard the saying, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, when Rick was, was singing his poignant response to Vernon's fatherhood, and he was saying, that's the way it's always been. They never listen. They're always right. He had some reason. He had some legitimate reasons for that. Because we try to keep such power instead of such scriptural reason in response to our kids. It's an emotional thing. You've heard power corrupts. But powerlessness corrupts also. And absolute powerlessness corrupts absolutely. And so therefore, any time a relationship becomes a matter of who has the power and who does not, it's going to be a very corrupt relationship. Satan would say to us, they're just trying to keep you down. You've got to focus on these restrictions because these restrictions aren't fair. We would say, no, there are certain restrictions in any relationship. But you keep those restrictions very focused. And the rest of it is free. There was only one tree in the whole garden that they couldn't eat of. There were the rest of the 99.9% that they could eat of. If they could have concentrated on the relationship and on all of those trees they could have eaten of, then they would not have felt the suspicion and the, and the bondage. So therefore, as parents, you do that. You concentrate. We've, I, can remember, I can remember having a, a multiple conversations with our kids when they were resisting certain punishments or disciplines that we had laid down specifically for certain actions. But in those actions, we would always say, let us rehearse for you what we have not taken away. Let us tell you what you still can do, what you still have, what we are still trusting you with, so that they could keep that in perspective. Secondly, Satan also tries to get us into a place where we confuse we confuse the purpose of life. Look at what he does here. It says, um, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be open 
Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and so she took from its fruit and ate. Now, what was the purpose for which God put Adam and Eve into that garden? The purpose is rehearsed in Genesis 2.17. I'm sorry, Genesis 2.15 and 18. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. But from the uh, uh, And then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. They were there for two purposes. One was to form a relationship with one another. And the other was to be contributors, to be producers, to be co-creators with God as he grew that garden. What did Satan do? Satan said this, No, your purpose is not to be a contributor. Your purpose is to be a consumer. Your purpose is to take into yourself. And as you are taking into yourself, then you will be happy. In the world we have today, Satan is still saying the same thing in a family that the family is there for you to have the emotional food that you need. Now, there's a very, very subtle difference here. Remember, Satan is the most subtle creature in which God is made. All of us need food physically, and all of us need food emotionally, don't we? The difference is that God meant us to have food so that we could take it in and produce with it. God meant food as fuel. There was always a so that for food. So that you can produce, so that you can create, so that you can do so that you can contribute. However, Satan says no, food is to be eaten for delight, for satisfaction to satisfy your appetite. Now, when you put that in emotional terms, What chance does a family have in satisfying the emotional appetites of all of its members? None. We weren't designed to be adequate for each other. Only God is adequate for us. And therefore, if you go to your family as a consumer, as an emotional consumer, instead of an emotional contributor, you are, number one, going to be disappointed, very disappointed. And number two, you're going to miss the purpose for which you were put here. Eric Erickson was the professor of human development at Harvard University. Brilliant man. He wrote a book called Childhood and Society. And in that book, he outlined the eight stages that men or men and women must go through in order to develop properly. It is so curious to me that those so closely replicate the development that people must have, biblically speaking. The first stage, of course, was basic trust versus mistrust. Unless you get over that, you will never develop. And that's what we were just talking about suspicion, wasn't it, in the garden. But watch this. He says that there are two times in your life in which you must have a sense of productivity or contribution. One is when you are in your childhood. The stage is called um, 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 industry versus inferiority. 
That is, there comes a time in your childhood where you must feel like you know how to handle tools or you know how to make something or you know how to produce something. And if you never get the feeling like you contribute significantly to anything, you're going to feel inferior for the rest of your life. There is also, ironically, I love this, a time when you are an adult and when you have children. In America, we call this the midlife crisis stage. When you you also must feel like you have much still to contribute. He calls this stage generativity versus stagnation. He says that at this stage of the adult life, you must still feel like you have much to teach your family. You have much uh, to give the world. And if you don't, you will lapse or regress into a sexual acting out and a personal impoverishment, and a depression. I don't know of anything that more accurately describes the midlife crisis of the typical American male. Why does it come? It comes because we have been confused to our purpose. Our purpose is not as consumers. We can never get filled up enough. Our purpose is always to be contributors and producers. That's why God made us. That's how God made us, you see? And so therefore, in a family... It is so important to see each other's potential as contributing to the world and as ourselves contributing to the family. Becky and I walk often. And during that walk, I was just thinking this this morning. During that walk, lots of times we're talking about our kids. You know, when you get a, when you parents are away, you're, you're talking about your kids a lot. And what is very um, interesting to me, I have not really thought about this before, we hardly ever talk about our kids' behavior. We always talk about our kids' potential. Did you see how he handled that? Man, that guy's got the making for a great leader. Did you hear the insight they had when they were talking about this? Man, that is fantastic. We always talk in terms of what our boys can contribute to the kingdom of God and to the world. Well, that is how God sees us, and that is how we must see ourselves, or we will suck the family dry of that which it cannot give us. In uh, a long time ago, there was a movie called Beckett, and it was about uh, Henry, the uh, uh, King Henry II, it turned out to be of England, and his childhood uh, friend, Thomas Beckett. And when they grew up, they were boogerheads. They were just ornery and always getting into this, very disrespectful and so on and so forth. And in that day, um, the second son almost always went into the clergy. And so uh, Beckett was the second son. He went into the clergy. They remained friends. Um, But Henry had a very loose lifestyle. And when he became king, there was much criticism of him on the part of the people and on the part of the church. Well... The Archbishop of Canterbury dies, and Henry says, I will appoint my friend, Thomas Becket, to that position. And therefore, as being the head of the Church of England, he will be able to quell the criticism. It's a good plan. But something goes awry. In the middle of that transition, Becket has a personal experience with the Lord. (laughs) And he begins to take his role as a spiritual leader very seriously. And in the investiture service, 
Of course, everything in the, in, the, in the Church of England is very ritualistic, and so this is no different. There is a symbolic giving away of everything you have to the poor so that you can operate out of poverty as they are in poverty. And Henry's looking on this like it's all a ruse, you know? Like, we'll get it all back later. I'll, give, I'll make you rich man again. But Beckett, as he is giving of himself, is beginning to sense the absolute joy of contributing to the needs of the poor. And he breaks out into a smile. And in that movie, he turns around and he faces the front of the church and the cross. And he begins talking to Jesus. And this is what he says. You. (laughs) Only you know. Only you know how easy this is. When we become contributors, in a family sense, we are denying the lie that Satan has told us it's their job to make you happy. And we are buying into the nature of Christ that says it's your job to lay your life down. And only we know how easy that is. Third, it's important to know that Satan will try to attack the family from the sense of telling us we must have reasons and good and sufficient reasons to stay within the family. Now, this is a very, very pronounced understanding of our culture today. Since the 18th century, rationalism has been rampant. And before I say this, I want you to know, and you already know me well enough if you've been coming here uh, for any time at all, I have a great deal of not only respect, but thirst for reason and knowledge that ends up in wisdom. I think that the smarter people get, the closer to Christ they'll become because all truth leads to Christ. Christ said, I am the truth. And so therefore, there's a great deal that we have to gain by being reasoning creatures. But listen again to the very subtle difference. It is good for us to be able to see why. But it is not necessary for us to be able to see why in order to be involved in a loving relationship. Look at the reasons that Eve has. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Contrast that to Ephesians. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Notice how he goes back to the relationship again. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why? And where was God when Eve was going through all of this? Well, I can see why I ought to do this. You see, the rationalization process, reasons become rationale. And rationale becomes rationalization because we are thinking with our desires and our appetites rather than with our mind. Let me tell you something very important that may surprise you. 
there will always be more reasons that you can think of that you should disobey God than there are that you should obey Him. You can always think of more and more reasons why it would be okay and why it would be logical and why it would be beneficial to just step outside what God has told you. I don't know of very many people who can think of as many reasons to obey God as they can to disobey God. Maybe motivation is part of the problem. I don't know what it is. But I just know that it's possible. Well, here's the thing that all of us need to understand. God doesn't want us to obey Him because we have more reasons to. God wants us to obey Him because of our relationship that is sufficient. God wants us to come to Him because He is enough, not because His reasons are enough. God wants us to stay with one another because we are enough for one another, not because we can think it out and come up with 99 reasons to stay instead of 80 reasons to leave. Because the relationship is what's important. Let me tell you, to me, the most painful part of ministry. I've heard some of you talk about pastoral ministry and say, you know, I could never do that because some of the things that you guys have to do, I just can't see myself doing. I don't know that I could bury a two-year-old. I don't know that I could stay in a hospital room and watch someone physically die and be there as they took their last breath. I just don't know that I could do that. Let me tell you something. That's a piece of cake compared to what I'm about to tell you right now. The toughest part of ministry that I've ever been through is going into the numbers of families that I have while the father or the mother, usually the father, tries to explain to the family why they're leaving. There are usually two or three, uh, it's coming up, sobbing children. And the dad stands there and says, now I know you won't understand this now, but you know, I just don't feel the fulfillment anymore, and I just feel like it would be better for the family altogether if I would just leave, you know, because we've had so many fights, and, and that's not good, and, and, and then, you know, I'll provide for you, and, and, and you know what? The kids don't buy it for a minute. The first thing that happens that you can see on the face of the kids is, I'm the reason he's leaving. I did something wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough for my dad. And so therefore he's leaving because I messed up and I'm so sorry, but I can't take it back now. I can't do anything about it. And there is sheer panic on their face. And usually in that conversation, some kid will look at that dad and say this, saddest words in the world, but daddy, Aren't we enough for you? You don't stick with a family because it's got more reasons. You stick with a family because they're enough. They want to be enough. There's nothing people can offer you more than themselves. They want to be enough. 
God wants to be that same thing. He wants to be enough. When we cried out to our Father, Lord, I don't know what else I can do to be good. God said, you're enough. And He put on skin and He came down and He died for us. You're enough for me. You're enough. That's the way families need to be. That's what God gives us to each other for. And the thing that stands in the way is the suspicion that somehow all of this is operating for the strength of one person or for somebody's good and not ours. Even if it were, would that be a reason to think only of our desires and not of each other's lives? Let's take some time to pray. And uh, let me suggest a few things to pray about. First of all, some of you, I know, have some forgiving to do. You've been through a situation that I've just described. And you had a father or a mother that was convinced by the other side that the goal of life was to fulfill themselves and they left you. And that hurt and you've never gotten over that. Some of you have never stopped blaming yourselves. It wasn't you. It was the other side. Secondly, some of you are very suspicious about the people with whom you are connected right now. You want to deny their proper authority. Or you want to deny the fact that they have a claim on your life at all. But if you're, in your, if you're in a family, they do have a claim on your life. And that claim, pronounced by God, is enough. And third, some of you are just looking for a way to love. You've been hurt and there's nothing left. You've been disappointed so many times, it is not inside you to love. You're the people I want to talk to. God never is thwarted in His love. And it's only when His love comes in your heart that you'll have what you need to be a contributor to your family or to your friendships or to anything. All of us run dry. All of us are disappointed. All of us are hurt. None of us want to love repeatedly after being disappointed. But God's character can teach us. God's character can be sufficient for us. God's character can answer enough of our needs that we can answer others' needs. If you are at that totally dry place, would you invite him into your life and say, Lord, I can't do this, but you can I am willing to be willing. Would you come and love? You can stay where you are. You can kneel. However is good for you. Let's just take some time. There are some of you who may want to ask for some help in a certain area of your life. And, uh, and we will pray with you if you would like that. Uh, JT, if you would...
help out with that. Um, we would be glad if somebody wants some somebody to agree with them on a, on a certain prayer concern, we would love to do that with you. Um, Peter and Louise, on, on that end, end, if you would pray with anybody who wants to pray, I'll be right here. Uh, but the rest of you who just want to pray alone, now's the time. Let God resolve this conflict in you.